rather than Molina being a kind of a polarizing Jack Morris type candidate um, where people are arguing over, you know, the eye test and, and, and old school stuff. I think the advanced statistics do clearly support the idea that Molina is, you know, the equivalent of a hall of fame catcher. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joining this week, the perfect guest for this week, because, to quote Tony La Russa, he'd be tied for first in the knowledge of not just the Hall of Fame history, but the Hall of Fame voting process. And that's senior writer at Fangraphs, Jay Jaffe, author of the Cooperstown Casebook, and you saw him everywhere this week. I mean, you were on an athletic YouTube program with Ken Rosenthal. Then the next day, Jay, I saw you pop up on MLB Network. You were like the go-to guy, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to let me come in here as, you know, I guess on day three it is, and <laughs> pester you with more of the same questions. Yeah, I think, thanks, Derek. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. I know uh, from our conversations uh, beyond the podcast that uh, you're somebody who's passionate about the Hall of Fame and, and uh, appreciates the minutia as well. So uh, <laughs> this seemed like a no-brainer to talk about because we've been talking about uh, the binary ballot and, and stuff like that for uh, the better part of a decade here. Yeah. Um, no, this is uh, this is the time of year when my work gets attention, and and uh, I do everything I can to try to make sure that. Uh, um, you know, that I can, that I can uh, meet that responsibility of, uh, um, you know, giving people a piece of my mind without overstaying my welcome. I cannot say how much I've tried to articulate in the past. Um, and I will continue to try throughout the course of this podcast, but how invaluable your work is at Fangraphs, your candidate by candidate looks, your deep dives, not into the, not just into the bios, but also into the numbers, um, the numbers that you have helped invent. Those are such a toolbox for all the voters. Um, I think it's just invaluable what you've given us to improve voting. Um, you know, I was asked about the Hall of Fame tracker that Ryan Thibodeau does. Um, I think that has given us a window into voting trends and right. voting accountability. I think a lot of the work what you've done is just made voters sharper because of the deep knowledge you give them. So thank you for that. I know that I lean on you heavily. Yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that. And I, I, you know, look, there was a time when it was controversial for, for, you know, the BBWA to let in people from baseball prospectus, which is, which is uh, the organization I was a part of when I first became a member. And I'm not, you know, in the, in the uh, uh, clubhouse breaking stories in the same way that uh, uh, everybody else is. Um, that's not really my beat. Um, you know, I do go to the ballpark to, to cover games here and there, but, but, but uh, I've, I've sort of found a niche within the BBWA that gained an acceptance because I do all the grunt work uh, or so much grunt work with, with regards to the election. And, and I'm glad it's appreciated. It's taken me some places that I never thought I would be. I mean, you know, t- TV appearances, a book, um, you know, uh, a first name basis with some of the top writers in the country, um, you know, it's really, it's really cool, and 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 I'm gratified that 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 people find the can find the work useful, and that it, that they continue to. The class of 2022 will have one member, or will have multiple members, but one member voted in by the Baseball Writers Association of America. One player got past the 75 percent threshold, which is difficult on purpose, and that player was David Ortiz, who did so on his first ballot. Also of note, of course, and. I want to ask you about this. 
is Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, Roger Clemens, and Sammy Sosa coming off the ballot because they did not get election in their 10th year. For you, which of those things stood out most? Did you have any sort of spidey sense that the 10th year might be the year that Clemens and Bonds got the bump, that late sugar rush of votes to get them in? You know, a few years ago, I would have said yes. And I did say yes when I was doing my five-year outlooks. And I can't remember how far back that goes. But it was very clear, over, the, especially over the last two years, that they weren't changing enough minds quickly enough. Um, we got a big we got big surges in 2016 with the sunsetting of the older voters, uh, the ones who had been more than 10 years removed from coverage. Uh, and then 2017, after Bud Selig was elected, um, you know, having presided over the steroid era, uh, mm-hmm. as well as participating in three years worth of collusion uh, and, and and other nefarious acts uh, uh, as an owner and a commissioner, um, you know, kind of throwing the character clause out the window and you know, in, in that respect. Um, you know, at that point, it seemed like Bonds and Clemens could very well uh, get to 75%, but then you've got Joe Morgan, uh, and his his plea, uh, which uh, had the fingerprints of the of the institution itself all over it, because he was vice chairman of the board of directors, and um, it was distributed by the hall too. It yeah, came yes. like a email from the hall. It was as official as 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 the hall has ever weighed in on the topic, and um, that seems to have stemmed the tide uh, in terms of of returning voters changing their minds. Um, new voters have overwhelmingly. Uh, supported Bonds and Clemens. I think Jason Stark had it 86% uh, over the last five years, something something along those lines. And um, we know my understanding here is that is that there are a whole bo- whole bunch of uh, writers who will become eligible to vote in the next five years that further would have tilted um, uh, or you know further would have expanded the footprint of those new voters uh, mm-hmm. and, and the like, likelihood of acceptance. Except now that now Bonds, Clemens, and every other candidate only has ten years of a candidacy instead of fifteen, uh, and so um, you know that was just one more way in which the hall put its thumb on the scale. So um, really, we've got we've got their fingerprints all over this. So it wasn't a surprise that these guys didn't get in. Um, you know, a few years ago, I thought maybe there would be. Um, some individuals holding out till year 10, um, you know, for what, for whatever reason, we did see a couple of them, Jack Curry and uh, of the, of uh, yes network and, and uh, Terrence Moore of the Atlanta journal constitution come to mind. Um, you're publicly revealing their ballots and saying, this is the first time I've done this. Um, but we, there weren't anywhere close to enough of, of, of those voters. And as for Ortiz a year ago, I said, look, I think David Ortiz is going to get in. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to be first year. Um, as as the as the uh, ballot reveals through the uh, through the the ballot tracker uh, showed, though he had a lot of momentum, and then you know it was at the point uh, just a couple of weeks ago already that that uh, he was estimated to have a ninety eight or ninety nine percent chance by Jason Sardell, who's the uh, mm-hmm. the king of the of the of, of the uh, election projections in our little circle here. And so, no, that wasn't really a surprise. There was a bit of suspense and, you know, see how close a call it was. Um, but this was, I think, comparatively less suspenseful, even with fewer ballots revealed before the election uh, than some of the other ones in recent years where we've had uh, um, year 10 candidates get in. And, and those are those are nail biters, even when you know it's probably going to happen. There's probably an argument to be said that um, 
Edgar Martinez set the stage for David Ortiz's induction, right? Martinez kind of loosened up the voters, the pool for the notion of a DH getting through. You could also make a case that the overwhelming support of a closer like Mariano Rivera and a so-called maybe specialist in the realm who didn't start games, who didn't play a position, um, also opened up the eyes of, of yeah. voters or opened up the way for like a specialist like Ortiz. I'll, I'll I'll go further than that. I think I think that yeah. I think that David Ortiz and Edgar Martinez helped each other get into the Hall of Fame. Oh, because okay. because David Ortiz had a lot of nice things to say about Edgar Martinez as he was building his support. Um, you know, the award became the the award for the top designated hitter became named for Edgar Martinez. I think it was the year after Ortiz won his first one of those, and nobody really looks at that award in general. But it's cool when you see a guy who gets it. You know, gets. They, they named the award after. So Ortiz said a lot of nice things that I think helped accelerate Martinez's progress. And in turn, Martinez's election helped val- validate Ortiz's election. So uh, it was a mutually beneficial um, situation there, even if it wasn't necessarily a, a, a intended to be anything more than professional respect. So um, what precedent so- do you think Ortiz offers? Does he open the way for... Anyone after him? Does he create, uh, you know, sort of get through the ice flow to open up passage for any players behind him? I, I I'm skeptical about that because there's 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 there are two things here. First of all, we're seeing the disappearance or the erosion of the full time DH mm-hmm. uh, as as a job. You know, teams teams see that as as an expensive older player. They can cut costs. They can keep their lineups more flexible. Um, you know, if they use a rotating basis or, or um, you know, something like that. You know, a platoon or something like that. So we're not seeing as many, uh, uh, you know, five hundred, six hundred plate appearance a year DHs the way the way we were in, in, at, at times. Um, the next guy on the list, I would think, would be Nelson Cruz, but he has a uh, fifty game biogenesis suspension to his name and and right now there's no reason to believe that he's got uh the uh momentum to overcome what manny ramirez and alex rodriguez two far better players uh have not been able to overcome in in their Mm -hmm. times on the ballot so uh you know i don't know i don't know that there's uh um, a huge precedent we can draw there i do think we are seeing at least you know some respect paid uh, to the specialists, you know, like you said, the Mariano Rivera, David Ortiz link. But, you know, we've seen a minor surge of relievers in the last, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess looking back, when I started doing this, when I invented the system that became Jaws, there were two relievers in the Hall of Fame, Raleigh Fingers and Hoyt Wilhelm. And then Dennis Eckersley uh, mm-hmm. was the was the third. And now we're, we're up to eight and Billy Wagner's knocking on the door here. So, um you know, we've we, we've had a surge of those in recent years, and so I don't know that Mariano Rivera himself is 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 except you know is particularly pivotal, except that he he got first ballot. Um, interestingly enough, now that I think about it, so I I've I noted this yesterday uh, in, in my book, uh, the Cooperstown Casebook, which came out in 2017. There are 14 long form profiles there, similar to what I do at Fangraphs now my, for for just about everybody, and. Nine of those players are now in the Hall of Fame, wow. and the only two that got in on their first year uh, were Rivera and Ortiz. Um, <laughs> they didn't really need my help. I mean, maybe they maybe they did, you know, need my help because Ortiz uh, Rivera was the first unanimous one. Uh, Ortiz, 
you know, got in by 11 votes. And I don't know, I was myself, that was the, that was the <laughs> candidate that I was most skeptical about uh, uh, whether I would support. I don't think I really said I'm not voting for this guy, but, but uh, I did not see myself as voting for him. And then yet, yet when it came time, I was, I decided, you know what, I am going to include him on my ballot in part because I want to make sure there is somebody here that we don't have a second straight shed out from the writers. I'm glad you brought up that biogenesis thing in regards to Cruz, because that's sort of where I was leading with that question is not so much the DH position, but that Ortiz might shape the conversation henceforth that's, with what yeah. we do with performance enhancing drugs. Um, you know, there were voters, there was conversation that pointed out a lot uh, or pointed out quite a bit. The New York Times report that in 2003, back when they were supposed to be blind and get information, the blind test that were supposed to provide information for future right. testing, that Ortiz was a part of that. Now, that test um, was, I mean, the commissioner went on the record to question the results of that test and to say that, look, you know, there were false positives, there were um, substances that were banned that would trigger a positive, all these things. Um you know, that he tried to say, look, you know, I wouldn't hold that against Ortiz because all the information isn't out there. And whether or not there was a false positive, that wasn't public. So I wonder if, and then, of course, big part of that is Ortiz then paid 1,700 games, not including the postseason, with testing. Um, right. The bulk of his career, and I got to say that carefully, uh, was <laughs> with testing and with suspensions. Still, it came up in almost every conversation about Ortiz, either fans saying, how can you reconcile voting for him and not vote for uh, Bonds? How can you reconcile voting for him and not supporting A-Rod? How can you do this when he had that positive test? Because obviously that New York Times report echoes far longer than right. the commissioner's comments. And I wonder if maybe that's where Ortiz leaves awake in shaping how we discuss performance enhancing drugs and does Gary Sheffield gain some momentum? Yeah, that's, I, I asked the question about Sheffield myself in, in my, in my candidate by candidate rundown, because Sheffield's a guy who has, he was mentioned in, in, in the Balco case. Um, mm -hmm. He repeatedly trained with Barry Bonds, did not know that the stuff he was taking was, was, uh, uh, were, were PEDs and, you know, is said, and this is a reporting by Tom Verducci here, I believe, um, who's been pretty hard line uh, when it comes to not supporting PED users. Um, but I don't think he's supported Sheffield, at least in recent elections. That that Sheffield com, you know, com, compares favorably, like five more war, one point lower, OPS plus, similar credentials. He never got to play on it, you know, uh, or he, he spent most of his career in the National League with teams that did not have DHs and his right. defensive numbers kind of drag him down a bit. But you know, I think we can agree he's a comparable player. Um, he's been building some momentum relative to where he was a few years ago, but he gained absolutely no ground this year, and he's only got yeah. two, years, two years left. Um, there's only five guys who've made uh, the two-year gains that he would need. Um, but uh, uh, so I, you know, I think he's going to get uh, above fifty percent from the from the writers. I don't think he's going to get to seventy-five percent. Um, but I think the I think the door is ajar for him. I think it's probably still and going to remain closed to anybody who had a suspension. Mm. Um, and I think it's still a very conspicuous gerrymandering of logic that puts Ortiz in the hall of fame, but not 
the pre-testing guys like Bonds and Clemens and Sosa. Um, because I don't, you know, I think we if if we're agreeing that the that the that the survey test is invalid, I don't think you can hold that against Sosa. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, innuendo and eye test stuff that people are going to cite when it comes to Sosa. And let's face right. it, he looked, he looked like a defensive lineman, um, you know, at, at at his height. And so, you know, people are people are obviously going to going to seize that. He, it, ridiculous about Sosa. We still hear we still hear talk about the corked bat as if that's something on, you know, that, that, that that's an equivalent violation. I mean, the physics of the corked bat don't even don't even <laughs> add up. You know, you, you're not going to increase your your the the distance on a ball and you know, on the flight of a baseball with a cork bat, uh, according to, you know, the physical models of, of, of folks like, uh, I think it's Robert Adair, the, the guy who literally wrote the book on the physics of baseball. Um, so, you know, people just want to, you know, some, some people just want to hate on Sammy Sosa uh, yeah. is, 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 is what I'm saying there. Um, but, uh, as to whether this whether this opens the door for Bonds and Clemens, I thought it was. I thought you know David Ortiz was very pointed in his comments post uh, post results and saying like I can't believe they're not they're not going into the Hall of Fame with me. This is yeah. know, this, this is a, this is puzzling. Um, so you know maybe maybe they take maybe voters take that to heart. Maybe Ortiz's peers uh, who were who were going to be on those committees, um, you know, in the future the, for which. Uh, um, those those guys are now are, are now candidates or will be candidates. Uh, take that to heart, and and we'll see some you know we'll see some movement on it. But uh, it does look very weird to have um, you know a, a an excellent player uh, who still wasn't anywhere near as good an all around player uh, and has just as many suspensions uh, as Barry Bonds uh, inside the Hall of Fame while Bonds himself is out. I I'm, I like the use of the word gerrymandering there. Because the way I approached my ballot, little insight here, if if I don't bore people with it, is comparisons. Like I'm, I want to remain consistent with my comparison. If I'm going to vote for player A, um, because he had, you know, he just stood out to me during his player career, playing career, and I remember him and I saw him a lot play, and I'm like, man, this was like a remarkable player. And then I look into the stats, and player B is pretty similar. Um, if I want to vote for player A to be consistent, I better vote for player B. What really kind of led me to that was when I first started voting and I had a difficult time separating Schilling and Smoltz, who a lot of people saw as surefire Hall of Famer. Certainly Smoltz was seen as like an obvious usher him to Cooperstown Hall of Famer and should be from Mike Mussina. I was mm. like, man, there's a lot of similarities here. As I you know looked at your work, as I looked at the stats, as I looked at everything, I'm like, you know, obviously – some postseason performance sets a guy aside. The saves that Smoltz had sets him aside. Sure, I could could go with those. But overall, like the body of work, I had a really hard time separating the three. And I said, like, well, if I'm going to vote for one or two, I should vote for all three. Um, similarly, with Sheffield, for me, because I saw him and I think of him as a Hall of Famer. I think that's that guy is one of the most ferocious right-handed hitters I've ever Absolutely. seen. Absolutely a tremendous player, what he didn't, you know, if you want to pick out one season, you know, to really, you know, put your, your star on, I mean, what he did with San Diego is the best player in the game, which is always something good to say about somebody who's eventually a hall of famer. Um, But as I looked at his career, I mean, Bobby Abreu comes up a lot 
And all right. of a sudden you look at like, okay, well, you know, the top 15 right fielders in terms of offensive wins above replacement, you know, 14 are in the Hall of Fame. 15th is – or four, 14 of the top 15 are in the Hall of Fame. The one who's not is Gary Sheffield. Mm-hmm. And 16 is Bobby Abreu. Right. I mean, that's – that's um that, that to me was like, oh, well, if I'm going to be consistent, then I better put Abreu. And you and I are one of the – or two of the few voters who did a Brayu in the same thinking with Ortiz. I was like, wow, he's got these offensive numbers. Um, doesn't have any defensive drag on him because he was a DH. And there's Jeff Kent who actually has a higher offensive war and uh-huh. stands out at his position. How can I consistently vote for Ortiz and not Kent? And that's where I went in. Do you do a similar process? Yeah, I, I, I think we tr- you try to, you know, I think I started doing Jaws as, and, and, you know, the foundation of my work is let's bring some logical consistency to, to, to Hall of Fame voting. You know, we all, there's, there are a number of defensible viewpoints for various issues, you know, in terms of how big a Hall of Fame you want what your stance on performance enhancing drugs is. We've seen, you know, even, even with that in mind, we see so many ballots that are just so logically inconsistent. Like why, how can you have this person, but not this person, you know, this guy's clean and, and was a better player. You know, why you, it's, it's it, you, you know, you can go mad. And I had to, yeah. I had to, I had, I had to, you know, impose a policy on myself that I'm out of the business of commenting on individual ballots, um, you know, as they go by in the, in the tracker and on social media, I just, I, I can't go there. I can't critique every ballot. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll go nuts. But so, you know, my, my system, I mean, it's the problem and, and you know, the, the, the root of it all is the, is the rule of 10. And, and, you know, I think that's where yeah. our, 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 um, Alliance here kind of you know go, goes go, goes back to was you know when when I was on the committee to to try to uh, get the Hall of Fame to budge from uh, having ten slots, um, which is which has been the case uh, for the writers going back all the way to, to 1936. They were you know they were inflexible and you know you had your thing about the binary ballot, uh, you know a, a simple yes or no on every candidate. Because what you know the 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 problem is with that with the rule of ten you cannot make independent decisions on who the best right. players are. You have you know you may have uh, I mean I think I think one year there were you know 14, 14 candidates who were who were at or above the Jaws standard uh, on the two thousand fourteen ballot I believe that's the number and seventeen who had a Jaws of at least fifty which is ballpark uh, you know close close enough close enough to work with. Um, mm-hmm. So you inevitably, instead of making a list of the 10 best players on the ballot, you're forced into some kind of triage and you have mm-hmm. to decide how, how to handle this. Well, these guys have these guys still have a lot of eligibility remaining. I'm going to make them lower priorities. Yeah. Um, these guys are near the end of their run. I'm going to make them higher priorities. This position is underrepresented. Um, this guy might not even get the 5% he needs to survive. Um you know, I and, and and here's my stance on performance enhancing drugs. So I, you know, I'm I'm looking to me. It's I start with the PED question. I'm, you know, right now using uh, testing error violations as a separator. So I did not vote for Bonds. I mean, I did not vote for uh, A Rod or Manny Ramirez. Um, you know, I think that they they made mistakes when they knew what the consequences were, and you know that that I think it's fine to dock them for that. 
um, but I do have Bonds and Clemens on. Then you know my the, my next you know my next set of guys is is the Jaws the the favorable Jaws guys, and for me that's Roland Helton. Um, Wagner and Jones. They're not all necessarily right above the standard, but they're close enough um, that I'm convinced that they are. those are the right choices. And then you now, have, fortunately, have a little bit of slack to play with. Um, and I did, like, your, like you, I, you know, I looked at the right fielders. I, had, I did a comparison between Abreu, Sosa, um, Sheffield, and yeah. Vlad Guerrero. And Vlad Guerrero is... Vlad Guerrero's, you know, got about a 50-ish jaws, which is below the standard, and, and the right field standard is the highest of any position because it's got Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, yep. Frank Robinson, Mel Ott, and one other uh, right at the right at the top there. And it is, it's it's very heavy, heavily skewed towards the top, and it raises Clemente. the Clemente. Yes, Clemente. Thank you. Um, yep. And so, you know, five guys with a jaws above 90, and and a couple with you know above 100, and so. You know, I think if I, if and I did not have Vlad on my virtual ballot. This was before I had the actual ballot. Um, but when I look at that, you know, Sheffield is is the best hitter, I think, and mm-hmm. Abreu is the best all around player. And I'm like, okay, I'm 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 fine. These guys are close enough for me uh, to include on my ballot. And you know, then I looked around and and you know. Joe Nathan is very comparable to Billy Wagner in the reliever system I'm using. Yep. I had I had I had that spot. Uh, um, I hoped that you know while I wasn't convinced that that he was you know undoubtedly a Hall of Famer, I wanted to keep him around to talk about um, when you know when when voters have more more slack to play with on their own ballots after these four guys fall off. Uh, so I mean that's that's how I did it. There's a set of internal rules, and it, it, it's frustrating how far that gets you from a list of, of the 10 best players on the ballot, because, you know, you're, you're trying to apply some logical consistency and yet you're acknowledging that you're not perfect. I mean, I, you know, I feel very strongly that the things that Kurt Schilling did are so damaging that, that I, I refuse to include them on the ballot at the same time. I don't really want to put stock in the character clause right. um, because it was created by a commissioner who spent uh, his entire tenure, keeping the game segregated um, and because That's Kennesaw Mountain Landis, just Kennesaw to give everybody Landis. the history, yeah. And because there are other things that I think are probably more serious than PED violations, that if I start, um, you know, pulling on that thread, I'm going to leave myself with a very empty ballot. Absolutely, um, you can't have an inquisition. Yeah, you know, I mean, this you, is, you just don't have the subpoena power. Yeah, it's it's you know, there's. But anyway, I you know I decided to, you know, to to leave off Schilling, and I I don't love that decision, but but it's a, it's a hard one. Um, I had Schilling. I, I wrote about Schilling in the book. He I had he had my endorsement. This is 2017. This is after his after his lynching comment and um, his firing of from ESPN for his bigoted comments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that point, I was like, well, I don't like any of this, and I don't like you know, I don't I don't like the um, any of his public persona here, but. None of that pertained to the baseball field, but taking things further to the point when I think he became a legitimate danger with his promotion of conspiracy theories and, and uh, you know, of both the election uh, kind and, and the COVID kind, I was like, nope, I'm out. I'm out. Our ballots were the same. We had eight overlaps of the 10. Oh, wow. And okay. um, what set, what was different was you had a, um, Schilling, I voted for Schilling. Um, what he said was reprehensible, and I understand that he asked off the ballot. 
Um, and it really bothered me when he made light of the T-shirt that talked about murdering journalists. Sure. Um, but I don't want him to be a martyr. Um, I don't yeah. want him. I want to prove him wrong, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that's where I went was like, all right, my ballot has to be how I would approach an article. You know, and I would mm -hmm. what I would say to his face is, look, man, you got it. You got it wrong, but I'm going to get it right with your career. And it almost made it even better that he didn't want to be on the ballot because it's like, look, I'm not going to give you that out. But right. um, but I didn't feel comfortable with it for all the reason that you said, you know, what he has said, who he has spoke out against and some of the things that he has promoted are just they're just awful. Um, they're yeah. vile. And I don't want I really struggled with is my vote a validation of what he said and can it be taken that way? <laughs> Or will people see it merely as a vote for his career? I don't have a really good answer for that. Um, so Schilling was different, and I voted for Kent, and you did not. Um, you went with the relievers, which yeah. for me has been a struggle because I I didn't I couldn't really separate Wagner from Nathan, mm -hmm. um, and Papelbon also shows yep. up a lot there. Those far fewer um, innings. Though we're, we're, it's relative at that point, right? I mean, I guess you're talking about in between 900 and 1,000 innings in their careers. Yeah, but, well, and, and yeah, and Papelbon has 20% fewer innings than than uh, than Wagner. He's right. down in like the seven in the low 700s. So to me, right. that was a separator. Um, yeah, for but me I did, too. But I did, I did struggle with like how how am I going to not vote for John Papelbon if I'm voting for Joe Nathan and 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 Billy Wagner? And in the end. The fact that he had just one vote in the tracker um, told me that you know what this is too few innings. People are not going to consider him. This is a this is a wasted vote. Joe Nathan has you know a little probably is going to get a little bit more support. Um, even that was a long shot, and it turned out to be you know between uh, three shy. Yeah, yeah, three vote three votes shy. And I wish people had come up with at least you know uh, enough to keep him in circulation. But Wagner, you know Wagner, I I, I feel pretty comfortable that I mean to me. It seems very clear that Billy Wagner is the best eligible reliever outside the Hall of Fame. Now, will Craig Kimbrell or Aroldis Chapman or Kenley Jansen supplant him in that? In that, it's going to take ten years before we actually know that answer. And right. in the meantime, I am very comfortable with saying Billy Wagner is going to be the best player, best reliever outside the Hall for for the next stretch. And that's that. That and you combine that with the numbers, we're, we're, you know, I think we're good. Um, Somebody well, has know. to be right. Like somebody, somebody the has. Thing. Yeah, that's somebody. the hardest part about the ballot is yeah. somebody has to be the best right fielder not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, is it is it Bobby Abreu or is it the guy behind up Bobby Abreu? Right. Somebody has to be the best reliever not in the Hall of Fame. Is that Billy Wagner or is it the guy Joe Nathan behind Billy Wagner? It's, yeah. it's somebody gets through the door and somebody is at the doorstop and that's the definition of the game. Yeah, and and you know, I, I I know that there are people out there who you know who saw my Nathan voter who see just in general the people the the candidates were voting for, and they say like, oh, you're making every Tom you know Tom Dick and Harry a a, a a Hall of Famer." Well, actually, I've studied this, and we're electing a a smaller percentage yeah. of, of players. Whether you're using just the whole player population, <laughs> or you're using you know thresholds that are at least you know the bottom boundary for, you know, for, for serious consideration of career length, like a 5,000 inning, I mean, sorry, 5,000 plate appearance or 2,000 inning cutoff, uh, you know, for pitchers, we're electing a, a smaller percentage of them 
than, than ever. And so yeah. we need to be a little bit more expansive with our, you know, with our understanding of what a Hall of Famer is. And so, yes, Bobby Abreu certainly fits that. And I, you know, the, the Jane Forbes Clark and, and, uh, um, uh, Jeff Eilison, you know, had the, the, the common talking point of if we're talking about the top 1%. Well, it's actually about, you know, somewhere closer to 1.5%. And we're haggling right. over the difference between 1.3% and 1.5%. And that's really the margin we're talking about here. And it's still very, very, very slim. And, and there's still always going to be somebody on the outside. And, you know, for me, um, you know, looking, looking at, at where, some of those guys on the outside, especially the ones that, that maybe have had something that, that worked against them that was so far out of their control, like Dick Allen, the way he was handled by the Phillies, yeah. um, you know, the racism he faced in the minor leagues and how, and, and, and you know, from an all white media uh, during his career and how that colored all the way to the post-career assessments by Bill James um, or Minnie Minoso and, you know, being, you know, being, uh, uh, Barred by the color line, and then you know kept in the minor leagues for 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 two productive seasons by you know the informal quota system after after he was signed, and you know finding this, uh, you know finding these these places where you know there's I think there's room for a little bit of corrective justice, um, mm-hmm. you know is 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 right at the top of my list, and you know the one and done guys Ted Simmons and and Bobby yep. Gritch and Lou Whitaker. Um, you know, these, those guys were, were, were great players who should have gotten, gotten greater support the first time, but the electorate was very stingy, um, because heaven forbid they, you know, they, they, uh, uh, include a, a player on, on the first ballot who wasn't Hank Aaron or Willie Mays. <laughs> so right. that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where it starts. You have to expect the hall of fame classes to grow when there's been expansion, expansion, expansion. when there are more yeah. teams and when there are more games. That's the thing about expansion and going from 154 to 162. There are more games than ever being played and thus more stats being accumulated. And while we're not seeing the one guys get to, you know, 300 wins or 3,000 hits, you know, the the game has evolved, but those stats are still being accumulated by players. And if anything, we know how to view them better because our, our metrics are better. They're more creative. So that leads me to ask you, after what you were just talking about, uh, why – why is third base so underrepresented? Why are there so uh, many good third basemen that are stuck as tourists at Cooperstown? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. We've got 15 non-Negro Leagues third basemen in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's the fewest of any position um, besides you know relievers uh, and and uh, I guess I think there's the same number of catchers now. But um, you know, third base is a position that is I think has changed pretty significantly over time. Mm. It used to be. Uh, a very defense first position because of the need uh, to handle bunts well. Um, There is, there's research that suggests basically that third base and second base have kind of swapped places on the defensive spectrum in terms of there used to be better hitters at second base than third base uh, who were less adept in field because um, the middle infield mattered less than, than the bunt. Um, but that's changed over time. But third base is still a position where you're, where you know, where where defensive concerns are, you know, significant, and um, it's also one where you know where you're expected to provide some offense. And so you're kind of right in the middle there. And to find, you know, to get you a man who could do both uh, is 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 harder than it is harder than it seems. And a lot of the guys who 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 do it 
aren't necessarily the guys who are who are hitting 320 like Wade Boggs and George Brett. Um, you know, they're they're sluggers who who have lower batting averages. I mean, Greg Nettles was the prototype when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a career 248 batting average with uh, almost 400 home runs. Um, you know, and 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 defensive wizardry. Um, but he's, he's like probably, you know, he's one of the best guys outside the hall. Ken Boyer, a guy who we were talking about, uh, before we actually hit record on this podcast is another one. And obviously big, big to St. Louis fans. Um, Scott Rowland right now is, 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 uh, uh, we have him, uh, via the fielding metrics. We have him as the third best third baseman of all time defensively. And, you know, somebody who, depending on what stats you're looking at is, is anywhere from a, from a, a top, you know, about around a top 15 hitter, mm-hmm. um, Despite a, a shortened a career that was shortened significantly by injuries to the point that he has, quote unquote, only two thousand seventy seven hits, um, but uh, you know we've seen him trending towards election. We've got Adrian Beltre uh, on deck here in a couple of years, um, but yeah, it's it's a very it's it's a position that has vexed voters. Um, the proposal that I wrote for the Cooperstown Casebook uh, that my my chapter on Ron Santo and. How how the Hall of Fame voters put third base in the corner uh, was was this was was actually that was that was the proposal was was based on that chapter, um, you know the first hall you know the, the Hall of Fame opened in 1936 or the sorry the Hall of Fame vote began in 1936 the institution opened in 1939 it wasn't until uh, I believe it's 1948. Uh, that Pi Trainer gets elected by the BBWA, and a couple years before mm. that, uh, <clears throat> Jimmy Collins becomes the first third base third baseman elected. He's a guy who was a star for the 1903 Boston Americans, the first team, uh, you know, the first team to win a World Se- to to win the modern World Series. Right. Um, you know, and he and he had just passed away, um, which gave him his candidacy some uh, added momentum, I guess you would you, you would say. Um, and that was 1945, and so it took it took a decade almost to to recognize the first third baseman, and voters have have still never caught up. I mean, I think I can, you know, if if Scott Rowland, Adrian Beltre, Greg Nettles, Ken Boyer, and Dick Allen were all were all elected, I would be a lot happier uh, yeah. with, the state, with the state of things. And then we'd still have arguments. You know, the arguments would, would be over Sal Bando and Buddy Bell. Uh, and huh. and whether Evan Longoria was, was was on his way or not, um, there's just there's a there's a bunch of really good ones outside the hall, and you know I hope that I, you know I think that wins above replacement has helped the situation to help illustrate this, um, just how how good and important these guys are, um, but uh, uh, you know Ron Santo was was a real cause for me, one of my first real causes besides mm. uh, you know him him and Burt Blylevin. Uh, were were two of my my first causes. Now, because my work was behind the paywall at, at Baseball Prospectus, it probably wasn't having the impact that it does now. Um, but uh, it, it had me all, all lathered up about uh, um, you know some Cooperstown justice, and and it was a disappointment, a bitter <laughs> disappointment that Ron Santo died before he could get elected, and yeah, and just a you know I think a, a complete failure on the part of the voters. Yeah, and you could say the same about with Buck O'Neill this year. Um, yep. I uh, I have a I, I I my favorite position is third base. Um, I have a fondness for third base. My favorite player um, from my youth is a third baseman um, who is going to be eligible for the today's committee uh, this coming 
today's game committee. Oh, the great Robin Ventura. Um, ah, okay. Who, uh, who I would argue belongs in the college wing of Cooperstown. If they ever do <laughs> yeah, that, right. he and Matt Weeders can be in the college wing of, okay. uh, you know, the great college players. Um, right. Yeah. You know, but, um, but to me, and I'll, I'll float this by you just uh, one quick thing on third base before I ask like kind of the breakthrough question of it is I, I think that it's held to a first baseman standard for offense yes. and slightly less than the shortstop standard for defense. And those it's just impossible for somebody to do that. You know, if it, you know, and, and the person who does do that, the few third basemen who have done that are among the best all round players ever, not best third baseman ever. They're just among the best players ever. Right. And so I wonder if we have to kind of toggle the, you know, the metrics a little bit so that maybe they're not being asked to be first baseman at the plate and shortstops in the field at that position. And the right blend of both of those things is actually a Hall of Famer. Yeah. You know, I look, I grew up when watching Mike Schmidt and Mike Schmidt was, you know, I think legitimately the best player in the game or, or, Absolutely. or one of the one of the top players in the game. I mean, this is a guy with with 107 career war. Um, you know, top top of the third base jaws list by a comfortable margin. And then number two is Eddie Matthews. And Eddie yeah. Matthews Eddie Matthews hit 512 home runs when 512 home runs was a big goddamn deal. Um, yes. he he retired I think he was the 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 career leader in, in home runs by a national league hitter i'm 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 forgetting exactly what the distinction was but anyway he was he was a top 10 home run hitter when he retired and it took him five years to gain entry to the hall of fame because he hit only 271 jeez i mean you know mm-hmm. like never mind obviously they didn't have ops plus then but his 143 ops plus you've got you know Dick Allen, Mike Schmidt, Edgar Martinez, and Eddie Matthews among third basemen. I mean, that's it. There's not a lot of basis for, you know, for dinging the guy. And he was a yeah. solid defender too. And and it took him five years to get to get elected. He had, it was, you know, I, I like learning about this stuff and going back and writing kind of the the history of the whole bungling third baseman. Um, you know, that was that really stuck out to me. And, and just it's still, yeah, you're right. They're expected to hit like third base. I mean, like first baseman and 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 field like shortstops. And, you know, yet uh, uh, even when you could find one who's 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 like that, it's still hard to get them in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I've been of the opinion for a long time um, for listeners of the BPIB that, that Nolan Arenado was the best all around player in the National League for a long stretch when he was with the Rockies. He's got nine consecutive gold gloves. Now he's with the Cardinals, um, a sublime defensive player at the hot corner. Um, He is trending towards Cooperstown. It's hard to say that he's headed for Cooperstown because of the cold shoulder the hot corner gets. Um, So it's just really hard to know. Um, But he's trending in that direction. And what I wonder is if Roland is going to be the harbinger or – or, or if Roland is racing the wave and trying not to be out of Cooperstown by the time the Beltre, Arenado, and that group starts coming into view. Well, I think I, I think Scott Roland obviously now. I mean, he's two back back to back big uh, number one gain on the ballot, um, sixty three. You know, sixty three percent. He's he's on deck for for election next year. I think that's uh, it's pretty safe to say. 
Um, so he's the harbinger. He's the harbinger of the great appreciation. Yes, of third base I, I, I think so. I think I think so. And and obviously Beltre with you know three thousand hits and four, uh, and and nearly five hundred home runs is 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 a near automatic. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Automatic. Yeah. I, mean, I don't. I don't know what you're. I don't know what what building you're going to put him in if you're not putting him in the Hall of Fame. Um, Arenado is is I would say I, I think I think it's fair to say he's trending towards Cooperstown. I would also say that about Manny Machado. Um, yeah. Yeah, I had a, I did a roundup earlier this uh, this year. In fact, it was in September, uh, just uh, just before the uh, belated induction of the class of 2020, um, and both of those guys are now uh, above 41 jaws. Let's see here. They're yeah, 42.3 for Arenado, 42.0 for Machado. The 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 standard of the position is 55. Um, they are 55.7. They are. You know, they both need a couple of big seasons. Um, Arenado, I think, needs to reestablish his offense outside yeah. of Coors Field. Although, you know, so he did hit for a 121 OPS plus this year. Um, pretty similar to what he did as a pretty, Rocky. Yeah, it's a little, just yeah, it's, it's right at his career average. Yeah, um, and had the 34 home runs, and, but his defense took a step back. Um, plus six in DRS, uh, where he was like, you know, averaging. You know, he was double digits every year before that, including his his rookie season. He was averaging sixteen a year. So he's there's going to have to be we're going to have to see all star level seasons from him um, for a few more years to really make sure that that he's on his way. But I, he's he's already looks to me, you know, as a guy who just turned thirty, he looks to me like he's got a shot if he doesn't just completely peter out. What this this all leads to? I'm trying to like tie things together a little bit um so that we don't just like leapfrog from topic to topic but the conversation of third base hints at that voters are becoming more aware of the defensive element um obviously ozzy smith is in the game or is in the hall of fame greatest defensive shortstop by a lot of measures um to to play and you know it was gold gloves and you know the yellow brick road as he said that led him to cooperstown because he because of his defense um, but this third base discussion that we're having does suggest that voters are opening their eyes to the defensive component of war, to the defensive component of um, contributing to the game. Do you think that there'll be a greater sense of defensive recognition in these coming classes versus it just being the hall of best hitters? I, th- I think we've already gotten that, to be honest with you, Derek. Um, Great. You know, yeah. I think – I think that that and you know I, I Andrew Jones would like a word with you. Yeah, I know. I, I look. I I I I think that the wave of advanced statistics that has you know that that I have been a part of has yeah. seeped into the electorate such that I think that the average voter is probably at least the average voter among active writers, mm-hmm. um, which is an important caveat there. Uh, is at least paying some mind to wins above replacement rather than triple crown stats, um, you know, and and has some idea of defensive scarcity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're we didn't see, you know, we we're not you know we're not seeing um, big RBI, big home run guys as the only route into the Hall of Fame. Obviously. In part of part of that is that route has been closed down to the 500 home run guys because of PEDs. But right. we've seen, point. you know, look, we saw we saw Larry Walker 
get elected. Um, you know, and, and and his defensive numbers were big. We're seeing Andrew Jones uh, trend towards election. I think it's I think it's fair to say that um, based mm. on uh, I had it in my candidate by candidate uh, breakdown. But you get to forty percent in, in in the writers' vote, you're going in eventually, one way or another. Fifty percent fifty percent is the big number, but forty percent is a very strong indicator of of, of of future election here. Let me, I've, I've got the article in front of me. Let me just scroll down. That article is available at Fangraphs for all the people listening. It's a candidate by candidate look, kind of a, a recap, but also a trampoline into the next year's conversations about the hall. And that's available at Fangraphs. Yeah. So, okay. So of the 21 candidates who received 40 to 45% on a ballot since 1966 and weren't subsequently elected by the writers or weren't on this ballot 17 which is to say 81 percent were elected by a small committee meanwhile 13 of those who got 40 to 45 percent at one point were elected by the writers i mean that's a really strong yeah it is indicator of of, uh, you know of of future election there and jones is there and and i think it's fair to say that that uh, uh with five years uh leeway here um, he's got a real shot at election by the writers. That's fascinating because that suggests that 75% is not necessarily the threshold. That in some ways the ballot, um, if a player does not reach that 75%, still serves as a prelude to future induction, which I think is fascinating. It does speak to the, like you said, I mean, if a majority of the current voters from the BBWAA think that you're going in or, or a near majority even think that you're deserving that the road might be a little bit longer, but ultimately you get there. That that's fascinating. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, PEDs are a confounding factor. We don't know right. whether other, whether there are other confounding factors there that, that, uh, uh, that would contribute to, um, you know, slowing Andrew Jones down. Um, you know, he does have a, a domestic violence conviction, yep. you know, in his past and, and, I don't think it's unfair for people to take that seriously. I don't know if I don't know that necessarily needs to be a disqualifying event, but I've acknowledged it in all of the uh, write-ups that I've done of him, and I try to make sure that I've acknowledged it in all of the other candidate write-ups. And if somebody you know feels strongly enough about that as being a disqualifying factor, I I respect that. You know, I'm I'm it's it's not it's not the criteria I'm using, but I can certainly understand why you know why people care. I uh, I appreciate your write ups because they are unflinching. Um, that's a big. I th- I think that they're they're clear eyed and unflinching, and I appreciate that greatly about them. Uh, will the appreciation for defense and maybe the totality of a player's influence on a game be enough in a few years then for Yadier Molina to be in Cooperstown? Do you have a feel for I that? I think so. With Molina, it looks like. Uh, Buster Posey is going to beat him to the ballot because of his retirement, but we're about to see uh, the entry and perhaps the only the, only a temporary entry because of uh, the the coming uh, uh, robot umpires, uh, the march the march <laughs> of the robots. Um, but we have a wealth of pitch framing data over the past um, you know decade and a half, and it very much strengthens uh, the arguments for both of those guys. Um, you know, I think if you look at if you look at catcher jaws uh, from Baseball Reference, um, Molina does not really look like a very strong candidate because 
Um, you know, while he is very valuable defensively, his offense is is middling. Uh, he is 22nd in 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 Jaws there, but the version of defensive runs saved that's used there uh, doesn't account for pitch framing. And we know that Yadier was an elite has been an elite pitch framer. His, his he has declined to average or slightly below average in recent years here as he's aged, which is pretty common uh, among among catchers. But I what I've done, and I did this for uh, I've done this uh, in relation to Molina, and I've done this in relation to Posey. But if you uh, include the pitch framing data, which we have at Fangraphs and which Baseball Prospectus, I think, has the gold standard uh, for. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you look at the half dozen catchers for whom we have, like, full career stuff. Uh, it, Molina is a much more plausible Hall of Fame candidate. Buster Posey looks like a, a pretty strong Hall of Fame candidate once you account for the br- relative brevity of his career. Um, so I think rather than... Molina being a kind of a polarizing Jack Morris type candidate um, where people are arguing over, you know, the eye test and, and, and old school stuff. I think the advanced statistics do clearly support the idea that Molina is, um, you know, the equivalent of a hall of fame catcher. Uh, Maybe not, maybe not uh, above, above the standard because of the, the offense, but, you know, we don't we don't have perfect pitch training data for you know to compare him to beyond uh, a handful right. of guys, um, but he's 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 very solid in there. Hang on, let me pull up my Buster Posey article here, and I can I can give you a more accurate assessment. Um, I, I titled my Buster Posey farewell. We'll see you in Cooperstown, Buster Posey. Um, I feel <laughs> very strongly that Buster Posey should be there. Um, He's got an MVP, he, right? He, I mean, he checked got, every he checked he's, every he's box. Championship. Yeah, he checked. He's got. He's got so much. Yeah, he checked every box except longevity, and I don't know how many yeah. one war seasons we need to see uh, that he's limping through and, and uh, uh, to convince us he's a Hall of Famer. But okay, so what I did here is I I came up with a Fangraphs framing inclusive jaws for catchers, and I also used um, Baseball Prospectus's pre uh, Statcast uh, pre pitch effects framing methodology which goes back all the way to 1988 and covers the career of mike piazza and so i came up with what i call f jaws here and cobbled together uh three different three different value metrics to to get this but um molina is one two three four five six out of eight catchers for whom we have that data but really right on the level of like Molina and Russell Martin and Joe Maurer are so close that it's indistinguishable. Um, Maurer, I think, is is a guy who should get first ballot Hall of Fame support, although I think there's going to be some squawking over that um, because he spent mm-hmm. the back half of his career as a first baseman. Uh, Buster Posey is a, is, is, is a tier above them. He and Pudge Rodriguez are, 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 are pretty close. And Piazza, who was an, actually an excellent pitch framer, which kind of ran counter to the notions of his defensive abilities, uh, is, yeah. is head and shoulders above both of those guys. Um, Piazza was, did not have a good throwing arm. Uh, he was a latecomer to yep. the position. But what he did very well was, was frame pitches to the tune of about 87 extra runs uh, over the course of his career. So I was really struck by what pitchers said about throwing to him. I know it's not. I mean that that lines up with the data, uh-huh. is 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 
affirming. Tell me a little bit more about that because I, I've, you know, I, I'd heard a little bit, but you're, you know, you're the guy who does the reporting and you talk to players a lot more than I do. Yeah. I just was always, you know, as he kind of, well, I, toward the end of his career was when I, I mean, he was with the Padres against the Cardinals in the playoffs. That was pretty early in my time covering the Cardinals. Um, just to give you frame, you know, no pun intended to give you framing <laughs> of it. But, uh, you know, just in being around the some of the young pitchers he worked with or like talking to some of the older pitchers, the, like you hear Al Leiter talk about pitching to him uh-huh. um, and just the way he 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 didn't have the great reputation for, say, blocking pitches. Um, some of that was probably due to the fact that there was some prejudice against big catchers mm-hmm. being able to do that. Uh, Mike Matheny spoke a lot about that, you know, just because he was a big, tall, strapping uh-huh. catcher and sort of things he had to do so well to overcome the perception of things. Um, but I just I just was always struck by, you know, we being down there in spring training, um, you're around the Mets a lot. And, you know, the Cardinals are in Jupiter with the Mets up in Port St. Uh-huh. Lucie. And the pitchers talked about how much they enjoyed throwing to Mike Piazza. And I was like, well, that, you know, they wouldn't enjoy. I've seen pitchers throw to guys they don't trust defensively. Right. And they don't like it. They're uncomfortable. You watch them pace the mound. You watch them, you know, kind of sigh, shrug. You know, they they don't get what they want to out of bullpens, let alone games at times. Uh-huh. Um, or you can watch them late in spring training games when that reliever comes in and he's throwing to the double-A catcher who he doesn't know or doesn't trust or isn't going to be a catcher for very right. long. Um, and you just see, like, oh, all right, well, here we go. Um, and just in talking to some of the younger pitchers, but, you know, the guys who threw to Piazza, they just spoke how much they enjoyed huh. pitching. That's, that's validated. And I, that really just stuck with me then years later when I had to consider him for the Hall of Fame ballot and go all the and hear all this stuff dragging on his defense. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, part of defense is how you handle your pitcher and how you influence the game and how you steal strikes and how you frame that. And if these guys thought he was good at it, um, you know, and then the pitch data, like you said, confirms that, man, that's, that's a, that's a chorus saying that he was pretty good at part of the defense. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when, I think when you, when you see, you know, when you, when you see how Molina lines up in there, um, that does strengthen his position. It's still, you know, he's maybe a little bit below, um, a slam dunk for for me, um, but seeing seeing where he lands here, I think he's a I think he's a top fifteen catcher, and I think that's a, certainly a, a plausible Hall of Famer to me. I I think though that you know Russell Martin is is going to be my Joe Nathan when it comes to, when it comes time for that. You know, I'm going to be finding because because Russell Martin was an ace framer too, and yeah, and a good. difference maker on a bunch of teams. You know, in terms of turning them. And, you know, he like the Pirates and the Blue Jays, you know, both have. Right. Blue Jays. He was, a, he was a pivotal player and, and, and the Dodgers and yeah. the Dodgers, too. I mean, like he was a pivotal player for all three of those teams becoming, you know, at least for the time that he was there, perennial playoff uh, threats. And, you know, I, I think he's a legitimately a transformative player, you know, in those in those teams and in those, in those clubhouses. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you can find I mean, like. uh the book that Travis Sochik did uh, on uh, you know Big Data Baseball, I think, talk, mm-hmm. you know, talks a bit about, about Russell Martin's uh, influence and about the Pirates' use of you know taking advantage of of, of his uh, uh, pitch framing abilities as being you know uh, something that where they could gain that that uh, that extra edge. It will help both Buster 
and Yadier that they're champions. I, sure. I do think that that probably heightens them as catchers um, because they'll have that kind of leadership yeah. field general of kind of bump where they get the benefit for what they did in October. And both of them have really strong October moments. Um, it was also very subtle of you to use the um, analogy of a slam dunk <laughs> for uh, Yadier Molina, considering he now owns a professional basketball team. Oh, does he? So cap tip to you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, that was Puerto Rico, a championship club. Uh, um, they won the championship last uh, year. Um, that brings us to the question I want to ask you about who's on the horizon uh, for Cardinal fans, Carlos Beltran stands out um, as being on the ballot for the first time next year for Rick Hummel fans who know his Twitter persona. Matt Cain is on the ballot for the first time next year. Um, who are some of the candidates that you saw when you looked into the future with a spyglass as to um, what's ahead for, for Cooper's Yeah, talent? I mean, obviously, you know, Scott Rowland and Todd Helton and Billy Wagner are, and, and, and Andrew Jones are at the top of the list, I think, in terms of guys we're going to see get in via the writers who mm-hmm. are already on the ballot. Um, beyond that, I think Adrian Beltre and yeah. uh, 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 Joe Maurer are, are, are upcoming guys. Um, Maurer, I have uh, eighth and no, seventh in traditional Jaws, including um, – fifth in five-year peak, and this is without framing data. This is Carter, Bench, Piazza, Pudge, Rodriguez, and uh, and then Joe Maurer in terms of seven-year peak. Those are Maurer's seven seven years as a catcher, you know, when he was an elite Amazing. hitter and a, and, 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 a, and a more than solid defender. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to make the case for him. Um, I think Chase Utley is a guy who I – you know, I I fear is going to be overlooked, but I think that I think he's a uh, a, a top ten second baseman uh, despite despite yeah. uh, the, the late start to his career. Um, George Gordon, like yeah, uh, uh, he's twelfth in Jaws, and uh, now he's point yeah. oh two below the standard, um, but he's he's really right there. I mean, that's 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 uh, um, indistinguishable from the standard, and 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 and. Uh, number nine in peak. So um, excited to make the case for him. Buster Posey, we talked about. Um, CC Sabathia is one that mm-hmm. um, I have a soft spot that goes back to my own fandom um, and the kind of the transition for me, you know, from being a fan to being, a, uh, you know, a, a professional in clubhouses. Uh, uh, the lines were always a little blurry, more blurry for me for CC Sabathia and some of the other, uh, some of the other players that, that, that I had access to, but um you know, he's until we get uh, Kershaw and Scherzer and Verlander and Granke, uh, all of whom I think are, are, are Hall of Famers, uh, have already done mm-hmm. enough to, to, to punch their own tickets. CeCe is is by far the best starter coming down the road. And if you look, you know, he's a he's a he's a significant tier above uh, the guys that, that are on this ballot, the uh, Burley, Andy Pettit, Heston, yeah. I mean, sorry, Burley, Hudson and Pettit. Uh, cluster, um, you know, Sabathia, the third lefty to 3000 strikeouts and, and, uh, uh, the 2008 and 2009, uh, you know, 2008 run with the Brewers and 2009 with the Yankees, I mean, are just superhuman, uh, performances that, that I think, uh, um, you know, kind of add a little, add a, add a little extra as does, I think his, his, his ongoing battle with, and, you know, and, and very frank, an open battle with alcoholism. 
Mm. So I think that there's there's a lot there, and I think it's going to go beyond simply the numbers. I think there's there's a, there's a narrative there that will strengthen it, just like I think there is one with with David Ortiz. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to that candidacy, and I'll be proud to put CC on my ballot when the time comes. I, I am of a mind that Adam Wainwright will be in the Hall of Fame uh, in some way, whether it's as a player, and I wanted to ask you about that, or as a broadcaster, yeah. um, that he'll find his way to Cooperstown in one of those capacities. Does getting to 200 wins, that's where Lester is, yeah. and Lester will get a lot of talk as a champion yeah. and a 200-win pitcher in this modern era, um, and maybe that bumps him over, and then does Wainwright come in the tailwind Both of those there? guys, neither of those guys does very well, even in the kind of refined system for for jaws that I'm using called S jaws, which which is designed to sort of um, minimize the impact of the 500 inning pitchers from the 19th century. Um, mm. Oh, cool! So, yeah, yeah I introduced this. It's now the default when you go to Baseball Reference when you and, the, and you pull up the starting pitcher page, um, and yeah. you can see we need to do a little bit of tweaking in the in the presentation there. But but uh, by S jaws. Um, Verlander, Kershaw, Granke, and Scherzer are all above should should be above the line there, um, and uh, Wainwright. Let's see, where do I have Lester here? Lester, I, Lester's pretty low. Um, yeah, I, I have Lester at thirty nine point four. I mean, his his jaws and his S jaws don't change. What changes is the is the the standard is is about five points lower once you reduce the impact yeah, of these guys. Yeah, understand. Um, and it's our, yeah. and based, what I'm doing there is I'm using a 250 inning basis, so everything above two two fifty gets prorated to two fifty. So you can't, you know, a 17 WAR season where you threw 500 innings uh, only counts for about half of that as 250 innings in your peak score. You still get the full credit in your career score. Um, but Lester is 149th in S Jaws. Wayne. Right is 138. They're both really pretty low, and yes, I think there's obviously there's postseason stuff that you could throw in there. To me, they're not close enough where it really would move my needle. Um, but you know, it just and for comparison's sake here, Tim Hudson, um, just to use one. Yeah, yeah, please do. And I know Burley's pretty high uh, up Hudson, there too. Hudson right? and Hudson and. Hudson is seventy second, and in, in, in he's he's eight points higher in S Jaws and Jaws. Um, Burley seven points higher, uh, Pettit seven points higher. Those three guys are in the 47, 48 range. The two guys we're talking about here are in the forty range, um, and these guys have postseason stuff too. Maybe not quite the volume, except for Pettit, um, who had endless volume because he was with the Yankees. Um, but um, I think. Those guys, you know, I, I, and I have to say, I mean, I love Adam. I, what, what little I've heard of Adam Wainwright on the on the air, I really like what he does as a as a yeah, as a commentator. I, you know, I hope yeah. he, I hope he continues to have success and and put himself further in the conversation because that will that will improve, you know, the the narrative. But I think it's really hard to get around how much time he lost. He's only got two thousand three hundred seventy five career innings. Um, yeah, that's fewer than Roy Halladay by about like five hundred, I think. Um, you know, 400 or 500, it's really tough to put together a Hall of Fame resume in that little time. Um, so, you know, he's, he's going, he's going uphill. The Tommy John surgery, the, the, the other injury stuff, um, mm. you know, really, really works against him. And, and, um, you know, but I understand, I certainly understand why Cardinals fans, uh, 
would want to see him there. And, and uh, um, I get asked about him quite often in my, in, in, oh, in sure. my, yeah, in my yeah. chat. So um, I did, I'm yeah, sure. I did write about it a little bit uh, at Fangraphs in September. Um, but uh, um, it's going to, it's going to well, take, it's going to take, a, uh, I think a more radical reimagining of, 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 of uh, starting pitchers in the hall of fame before we get to Wainwright and Lester to me. The uncomfortable truth of the hall of fame beyond the fact that there are already cheaters in it. And yet we go into contortions to try to figure out how Mm -hmm. to not vote some of them into it is that there is a player at every position who is the one everybody surpasses to get in. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. Um, I'm glad for outfielders. It's not Tim Raines. I'm glad for outfielders. It's not Larry Walker, but that doesn't change the fact that it it probably is in our lifetime going to be Bobby Abreu. Mm -hmm. And for starting pitchers, it could be Hudson. It could be Pettit. Yeah. It could ultimately be Wainwright, who is the one that everybody better than him is in Cooperstown. And, you know, Wainwright has the benefit of also being the top prospect broadcaster right now. Um, so he'll, he'll get it and he'll give a heck of a speech and, you know, it'll be, uh, it, you know, he has the talent to do that. So I, I feel comfortable with that prediction. It's just a really interesting, you know, way that the Avenue that he's going to get there is not exactly main street right. um, to, to borrow a right. pun. Um, I want to, I want to ask you one last thing. And I've wanted to ask you this for a long time. And I realized that I'm asking it at the risk of another 20 minute <laughs> conversation, but, but I do, I have always wanted to ask you this. Um, why the hall of fame um, is that, why has that God. become <laughs> such an area of of your interest? Because I get the sense that it was an interest that became an expertise, yeah. and that your passion for it really stems from somewhere. And I'd like to know yeah, where. I, I think it's it's a really good question, and I don't, I don't, you know, it's I don't have a perfect answer for this, but I think it's it's a combination of an intersection of of a few things. Um, I grew up reading Bill James. Uh, I, you know, I found the Daniel Okren article in Sports Illustrated uh, about Bill James. The night it was 1981, I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. And so when the when the abstracts uh, became a regular thing, I was I was reading those, and he introduced um, the Hall of Fame monitor and similarity scores, and uh, I was interested yeah. in that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the the historical abstract in 1985 uh, had the career and peak. Uh, uh, rankings for players. There was no real defensive factor uh, in in there, but uh, um, that uh, that was still that kind of planted that seed. And then you know I drifted away from baseball in college because I didn't have a, my own television uh, for a while. It was I went from like the Dodgers in, uh, winning the World Series in 1988, and I grew up a Dodgers fan. Uh, then seeing uh, uh, the 1991 World Series, the first time that I had a, a time to watch any tv um even though it was at the risk of blowing exams um that world series you Mm -hmm. just couldn't take your eyes off um but then i you know stumbled across uh james's hall of fame book um politics of glory or the version i have is whatever happened to the hall of fame the paperback version and yep that kind of between that and the historical abstract in 2001 um, the new one that introduced wind shares, I was like, oh, let's think about the Hall of Fame here. And I blogged about it at, at the Futility Infielder, which was my independent blog that I started in 2001. And that got more. That yeah. Got- and 
deep cut here. I was always jealous of the name <laughs> um, going back to 2001. That's awesome. I didn't know um, that. When I saw it, I was like, oh, man, gosh. And then we started a blog here in 2004. Um, and they weren't really called blogs, I guess. And I was like, how do I even rise to the level of futility? Gosh, dog, <laughs> you took the perfect thing. Oh, I didn't know that. That's that's great. Um, so the first, one of the things that I that got atten- got attention for me was was um, my Hall of Fame post, and I decided let's look, let's use wind shares to look at the ballot. This is the 2002 ballot, mm. and what does that tell us? Because we know what we know about baseball history is there's wide variations in scoring and ballparks. And, you know, from era to era and park to park. And, you know, if we can neutralize this a little bit, um, what does that tell us about candidate values? Um, And I, you know, it was a pretty rudimentary attempt to bring advanced stats into the Hall of Fame argument. And then in 2004, after I'd done, you know, considerably greater traffic for, for my Hall of Fame post than anything else I was doing, Baseball Prospectus invited me to do something. And I was like, what if we use warp, which was their wins above replacement player yeah. value metric, and it was uh, uh, introduced ahead of uh, the versions of war that we now have? Um, but what if we? What if I try to figure out what the average Hall of Famer has at each position um, and compare the candidates on the ballot like that? And it resonated with enough people that um, it, you know that's what ended up helping pave the way for me to become a regular prospectus contributor. Um, and I, in doing so, I really tapped into the fact that everybody has an opinion about the Hall of Fame. Every single baseball fan has an opinion about the Hall of Fame, or multiple opinions, and they will. It's a passion there, you know, that we all we acknowledge at this time of year. Um, it was my dumb luck to to to, to hit the gold mine with that, and to realize that there was a thirst for this information even in July. And you could talk about somebody being on a Hall of Fame track and you could produce numbers mm. that could help make a case for that in mid-career. Yeah. And that, you know, as, as I went on and got into the BBWAA and, and got into, you know, I, I got into circulation on, on MLB Network uh, with Brian Kenny because he liked the stuff and Baseball Reference liked the stuff enough to, to that I moved uh, Jaws over to there. Um Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, all and I got into the BBWA, and there was an institutional need that I spotted that to help, you know, I think help uh, members understand advanced statistics and and try to speak their language, and maybe also try to clean up my own act a little bit <laughs> because I was this, I was the I was the guy as a blogger I was the guy lobbing lobbing the the, the spitwads at, at some of the beat reporters and for yeah. not being particularly adept analytically and and you know being maybe a little bit insecure about my place within the organization it was like well if i'm diligent at this you know maybe maybe that's maybe that helps cover for for the fact that i'm not the most uh you know i'm not going to lead the league in attendance at ballparks um and i you know i kind of found that was the that was the case um you know you are you are one of the uh Many BBWA presidents that you know, with which I've had conversations about the Hall of Fame with, and um, you know, I'm lucky that the leadership within the organization has valued my contributions. I, you know, I sat on a, a, a committee that uh, Susan Slusser chaired that we tried to get yeah. the hall to to expand the uh, the number of slots on the ballot and pursued other avenues and found found which 
you know, th- there were very few avenues to change open, but that that one seemed the most likely to be open, whereas 75% was not open, um, you know, and, and, and some of the other parameters were not open, but um, so, you know, I, I lucked, I lucked into an evergreen resource um, for passion uh, that people's passion ha- have a passion about baseball. And I've just decided to keep holding on to that um, because it, 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 you know, it's uh, uh, people, people like it. People, you know, it's taken me places that I never thought I would go. A vast majority of people who reach the hall of fame, it comes at the end of their career and Jay, yours career got to start at the hall of fame. So that's <laughs> I'm working backwards. That's so nobody, a, nobody ever, yeah. nobody ever said I had to, that I wasn't doing things backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs. This has been a great conversation um, about the Hall of Fame, about the intricacies of the ballot, um, about specific players. And I really appreciate it, Jay. I could talk to you for hours about this. And at some point in time, I'd like to have you back to talk about Cooperstown okay. and, you know, not just like, you know, get in the muck and quagmire of PEDs and stuff, but we can talk about some of the great things that are there in Cooperstown and some of the things that have highlighted. And a lot of that you, you, you do touch on not just the ones that have been missed, but the ones that have the players that have been celebrated and, you know, reach the hall um, in your, in your book, the Cooperstown Casebook. So Jay, thank you so much for joining me on this. It's been, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. This was a lot of fun and uh, absolutely we'll do this again. If you want a master's class in Hall of Fame voting, Hall of Fame trends, Hall of Fame worthy players, and what to watch for in the Hall of Fame ballots ahead, seriously, check out Jay Jaffe's work at Fangraphs. These are some of the best, most deeply researched and accessible biographies on Hall of Fame eligible players. But they also offer a real detailed roadmap into some of the advanced metrics that Jay has helped create, Jay has helped popularize, Jay has helped kind of spread. And in that way, Jay has helped shape Hall of Fame voting. You can find his work at Fangraphs.com. You can also find his book anywhere you get your books, including independent bookstores, The Cooperstown Casebook. You can find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcasts, including iTunes, where you can rate the podcast, you can review the podcast. Seriously, I listen, I go and check those to see what we can do better, what we should do more of. You can also find the best podcast in baseball and all of the Constant Cardinals coverage at sdltoday.com. That's where you'll find the chats, the columns, all the work from Hall of Fame writer Rick Hummel because uh, the lockout has stopped baseball, but it hasn't stopped baseball coverage. The best podcast in baseball is brought to you, as always, by Closet by Design of St. Louis. And along with the coverage, the podcast will continue through this lockout, too. It just gives us a chance to uh, maybe have some uh, conversations from beyond the field, like this one. Look forward to talking to you soon. Stay tuned. Stay informed. Stay healthy.